the attention is the problem, right? Like I know every story I write is going to blow up because I, a lot of my stories, at least like every major story I do is goes viral because I'm writing about huge personalities. I'm writing about people usually with millions of followers that are going to respond. I'm writing about things that everyone's talking about or has strong opinions on or that's trending or whatever. Like, and so there's just so much, if you do the, if you do the job well, you are constantly in the, you are in their world, right? You are in this content creator universe where like, it's crazy. And you're operating in this new media ecosystem. That's an attention driven ecosystem. That's been weaponized by the worst people in the world. Hello, and welcome to Reality Studies, a show that tries to clarify the chaos from culture to the cosmos. I'm your host, Jesse Damiani. Each episode, I sit down with leading thinkers for big idea dialogues about the research, concepts, and questions that animate their approaches to reality. Joining me today is Taylor Lorenz. Taylor is a technology columnist for the Washington Post business section covering online culture and the content creator industry. She was previously a technology reporter for the New York Times business section, The Atlantic, and The Daily Beast. Her writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, Outside Magazine, and more. She frequently appears on NBC, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and the BBC. She was a 2019 Knight Visiting Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and is a former affiliate at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Taylor's work hits one of the main goals I have in doing a podcast in the first place. I started Reality Studies because over the past few years, I realized that a lot of us were asking variations on the same question. What happened to reality? And of course, follow-ups of how and why did it get so weird? Are we living in a simulation? So I started researching these questions, and even if I wasn't gonna be able to answer them, I wanted deeper context for them. I've written about some of the fruits of this research in the newsletter, but the podcast is a place to spotlight the folks who are doing the critical work of identifying cultural shifts and translating them for the rest of us. Taylor epitomizes this. For years, she's been finding the niche corners of the internet and tech culture that the rest of mainstream media isn't taking seriously or outright dismissing. Her stories have documented how the commodification of attention has brought about new power structures, new economies, new creative ecosystems, new celebrities, and her book, Extremely Online, is out October 3rd. Like her reporting, it sidesteps the triumphant hero narratives of Silicon Valley giants and instead documents the people, moments, and events that weren't necessarily on everybody's radar at the time, but in retrospect were watersheds in the development of our lives online. This was a rich conversation that references some of the content in the book, her process as a writer and historian, and how covering creator culture has impacted her personally with some funny anecdotes mixed in. I hope you enjoy it. Taylor, thank you for being on the Reality Studies podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Extremely Online with you today. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind with this book is sort of a structural question. It seems to, the, the history seems to unfold across a series of precedents that seem kind of obvious in hindsight, like the fact that YouTubers would need agents and security and sort of be treated like regular celebrities, but that wasn't necessarily clear early in the sort of trajectory of creator culture. So these were like social experiments that were occurring in real time. What have you learned about creator culture in mapping these precedent setting moments? Yeah, well, one thing I learned is that the media is always kind of wrong and behind. <laughs> it's 
funny to go back and just like read, you know, mainstream media news articles about the internet. And literally, I would say for the past 25 years, they have been like, they have downplayed it and kind of like minimized it every step of the way. And, and not even just about creator culture, but sort of everything. And it was just interesting to reread it and just be like, God, like time and time again, they keep getting it wrong, you know? So, or they sort of misread why something is compelling. And so that was just kind of interesting. Like I found actually that the most useful kind of coverage of that industry when I was doing my research was just not the mainstream media. It was more like blogs or some digital media and just kind of individual like people that kind of just wrote a lot about the times. Um, and um, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, it was just interesting also how the platforms themselves kind of like how the industry evolved, like it used to be very platform specific. And then um, I write about this in the book, but after Vine died, like now you see this like era of these multi-platform creators. So it's just interesting how like one little event could have, you know, ripple effects across the industry. Totally. Well, that was one thing that came up for me a lot is like, you know, as somebody who like my first real sort of um, entry into social media was MySpace. And mm -hmm when I was reading this and sort of seeing the kind of different waves and the different ways that different companies either succeeded or didn't is if you had this sense that like, were these events kind of preordained to happen the way that they did, or were they the type of things that were just kind of circumstantial and we could have lived in a world where MySpace would have been the sort of main player in the social media game? I think, you know, so much of it's about timing. I think MySpace was so ahead of its time. And I think actually, I mean, this this is another trend, I guess, that I saw a lot writing. It's like there were these people that were so early and actually saw the future before anybody else. Like, I think MySpace's vision of the future and how they talked about entertainment and media is 100% um, basically the way TikTok it talks about it now. MySpace wasn't, I mean, they had MySpace TV, but it wasn't, it was still very like web-based back then. They were just, they were they were thinking about social media, how it would be thought about in 15 years, but they were trying to build it at this time when being online itself was still very stigmatized and weird and people didn't want to necessarily like add a lot of friends online. Like that wasn't the norm yet outside of like teenagers and other people like probably our age that thought it was cool. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of it, it, it really had to have like the technology itself and the social norms had to change for the right products to take off. And it's, I would say it's like 50% right place, right time, because there were a lot of people that I think probably would have been very successful if they'd actually just been a little bit later. Mm. It's fascinating. One thing that also sort of we, we take for granted now kind of in that mix is like this notion of very contested notion of cancel culture. But you referenced this early moment from 2002 with the, the Internet's first scalp. I'd love if you could share kind of like what happened there and what you sort of see it communicating, getting to the earlier question about this clash between old and new media formats. Yeah, I talk about Josh Marshall, who was an early blogger. He was a political blogger. He worked at the American Prospect by day, but he would blog by night at Talking Points Memo, which is now actually his independent media company. And I talk about this. It was a birthday party for Strom Thurmond. There was a toast given by Senate Majority Leader at the time, Trent Lott. And Trent Lott basically praised, made a bunch of praise for sort of like some of the worst of Strom Thurmond's ideologies and kind of seemed to support like segregation. And this was something that kind of went over the heads of a lot of 
inside political writers, um, like, you know, at the mainstream media, they just kind of ignored those comment comments and just kind of wrote like a quick item about, you know, the birthday celebration. But Josh noticed that and he ended, he noticed that sort of like comment. He pulled it out and he did what bloggers do best, which is do like 20 posts on it and kind of relentlessly cover it uh, until Trent Lott was forced to resign. And yeah, the New York Post ran a headline that was titled The Internet's First Scalp. And it was about sort of how people on the internet, specifically bloggers and Josh Marshall, were able to get Strom Thurmond <laughs> kicked out of office. And there were so many examples of things like this, actually. I really just like that headline. So I used that, that example. And also because it affected our entire political landscape. But you saw these little moments time and time again of these sort of like insurgent power of people online to have real meaningful change and to kind of circumvent the mainstream media and yeah and like upend politics fashion you know at name you know, sports um you know all of this stuff and have you observed in the past um so um one thing i sort of forgot to establish early on is like this history really looks at the past two decades and this is this crucible basically in which social media is is forged has has Whatever old guard means in the given format, so whether that's like print journalism or or as different successive platforms are emerging, have you observed this dynamic repeating itself again and again, or have have you found that the old guard ever gets savvier? Like I'm thinking toward the end of the book, you reference like venture capitalists trying to kind of use their positions with startups like Clubhouse to burnish their their own brands as as influencers. Um, but then Clubhouse didn't necessarily find the success that they were hoping for. So what have you observed in, in that regard? Yeah, well, it's very funny because I think venture capitalists learn that you cannot force, which Elon is learning today, like <laughs> you can't force, you can't force specific people to be popular on your platform. You can try to force feed these people down people's throats and you're going to lose users that way. And Clubhouse found out the hard way. But I will say, yeah, I mean, so institutional, once the pandemic hit, which is a little bit around, like my book sort of ends a couple years into the pandemic, that's when everyone was really forced, obviously, to all be extremely online. And that's when a lot of institutional powers were forced to take it seriously because suddenly everyone was online and they were like, wait a minute, what's happening over here? Like this world we've ignored for literally 20 years, like maybe there's something here. And so you saw VCs pour money into, you know, the dumbest startups alive, to be honest, because they had ignored it for decades. And then they were like funding things that nobody wanted or needed and also there's already this robust half a trillion dollar industry that they just ignored. So it's funny, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a VC and she read the book as well. And she's like, you know, not all VCs. And it's true, <laughs> they're not all VCs, you know, like um, the churning group, I think it's called like invested in Barstool early and a bunch of other sort of creator driven media companies. Like there are these like, but they're not generally the Silicon Valley tech VCs. The Silicon Valley tech VCs are sort of like notorious for coming into the last minute and trying to make money off something they have no idea about. You know, I think they're all in AI world right now. Um, so it was just kind of funny to see like that they had missed the boat on that so badly because I think if they had gotten into it and the ones that did get into it in 2010 or you know 2007 like they that recognized this stuff early they made a lot of money and then in terms of traditional media I mean I work in traditional media and I can tell you they absolutely do not get it at all I think they've tried a little bit more and they sort of recognize that they have to use the internet like there's people within these institutions that are brilliant and amazing it's not really the workers it's the management that sort of is just very slow to sort of grasp that it's not the 90s and they don't control the media like the media is the internet now the media is not 
uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post. <laughs> mm. Well, and actually, um, oh, sorry, I, go ahead. oh, sorry, I was just going to say for good or bad, like I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of pluses and, and minuses to that. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about like you're somebody who kind of dances across both of these worlds, like when you're thinking about your work of covering creator culture and in some ways sort of adopting creator tactics while also being somebody who's a columnist at, I mean, your pedigree is all these major media organizations. How are you thinking about that, that balance? Yeah, I am very much from the internet and I always sort of care about the internet more than I care about traditional media, but working in traditional media has been so interesting, I think, because I've really seen like what, what, it, why can't they catch up? Like I used to write a lot of really negative things about, you know, the mainstream media when I was a blogger. And now that I work in it, I think I have a lot more empathy for for like the people inside of it. It's mm. generally not the reporters. Again, it's this like management level that just is, it's like Congress is the same thing. Like look around, like our whole country is like run by this gerontocracy that refuses to give up power and is not with the times. And that's true for media, it's true for politics, it's true for like literally name any industry. So I think it's just, you know, there has to be some turnover, I think, before anything really changes. Mm. So you referenced blogging and one thing that I was really struck by early in the book that I sort of peripherally understood, but you bring such a power to this narrative is about mommy bloggers. And like the fact that your book is chronicling the commoditization of attention as power and mommy bloggers are this first kind of, I don't know, flashpoint in that trajectory. Could you share a little bit about the role that mommy bloggers have played? Yeah, I would say they were like literal mothers to this whole industry. It's kind of crazy. I think a lot of people think of the creator industry as like YouTubers or beginning with YouTubers. And that's not true. It really began with bloggers and specifically mommy bloggers because mommy bloggers, which itself is this like very fraught term that some women mm. came to embrace. A lot of other women felt was deeply misogynistic. Um, they dealt with so much misogyny and hate for what they were doing. But um, as I mentioned, there were these other bloggers, especially in tech and politics that were sort of getting lauded and able to get attention online and people like Josh Marshall. And then you had moms, a lot of mothers, a whole, basically a whole generation of Gen X mothers that were shut out of the workplace and turned to blogging to express themselves. They ended up monetizing. They were sort of the first to like build a personal brand online and then monetize it. And they were just brutalized for it because people were just so angry that mothers would one make money online like it was the, like this notion of like motherhood was so sacred and like how could you monetize you know your life as a mother and then also just they were kind of like attacked as being like attention seekers and like well, why do you have to blog about your life you know why aren't you just happy at home you should be cooking for your children you know like why are you on the internet? And a lot of things, the, the thing is the internet was such a lifeline for these mothers because motherhood is incredibly isolating. And women's media at the time, traditional media was deeply misogynist. Like I went back and read so much women's media from the nineties and aughts for this book. And it was just disgusting. It didn't talk about, it's, it's actually like bizarre. It reads stuff from 2005. Like it reads like the 1950s. It's really weird. Um, mm. And that's because mommy bloggers were the ones that normalized things like postpartum depression and, um, you know, not always loving your kids and, you know, just having a hard time struggling, coping with addiction, turning to wine, you know, during playtime to make it through, hating your husband. Like 
just all these taboo topics that had never really been expressed in traditional media, mothers were able to go online and talk about and then make money supporting themselves, you know, through that. So it was just really liberating and fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there seems to be this through, I mean, you reference these sort of like highly visible misogynist moments, like thinking of like Julia Allison and some of these other women that you're referencing throughout the book is a parallel stream to women and femmes being people who often were the innovators of particular cultural and social practices. Can you talk a little bit more about that, that dynamic? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's so crazy because this whole industry was completely built by women and I mean, primarily women and then secondarily, like other people that were basically like marginalized, a lot of LGBTQ people, people of color, just like people that would have never ended up in mainstream media. Um, and that's kind of who fostered this whole like blogging ecosystem and then really like use the internet very early to monetize. I don't get it in, into it in my book either because it was so niche and separate from this main industry, but sex workers were also really early adopters of the internet and online monetization. I talk about that later with OnlyFans, which I think was the first true creator-driven sex work platform. But yeah, it was just all women and people were obviously livid at it because I think since the beginning, there's just been this deep misogyny against women and women's work and women's role in society. Mm. You also brought up BIPOC creators and you reference obviously 2020 is this big year of reckoning around systemic oppression broadly, but it was also within the creator subsection, a, a moment of reckoning around people of color being exploited and extracted from in social media platforms. Could you A, describe that a little bit um, for listeners and then B, I'm curious what you've observed, you know, it's been three years now, what movement or not that you've seen on that front? Yeah. So, I mean, sort of throughout the 2010s, well, the aughts and 2010s, right? You had a lot of viral moments coming from people of color. Like I talk about Tay Day, Adam Boehner in my book, who wrote the Chocolate Rain song. And there's Peaches Monroe, who created the phrase on fleek, like so many vines specifically. There was just a lot of obviously like sort of culture created from those communities. And then in 2020, obviously there was this big reckoning and people started to talk about credit and ownership. And I talk about Jalea Harmon, who made the Renegade dance, who was a story that I wrote about this 14 year old that made one of the biggest dances on the internet and also never got, she wasn't, she didn't get credit until we wrote the story for the New York times basically. And so you know, there, there was this like moment when people started to like, oh, like actually we should pay these people and actually we should, you know, do all this stuff. Unfortunately, as with every other bit of progress that was made in 2020, it flipped back very hard the other way. And now we have no, almost no, no one cares. I mean, no discussion of it at brands. I saw a chart released by some company recently where they've spending on cre creators of color has gone down actually from pre 2020 levels. So mm. they're in sort of a worse position than they were previously. And I think un unfortunately that's just sort of the case with all the social progress that was made in 2020, even outside of, I've talked to people about sort of why this is, and it's just because people, you know, for so many reasons, but there was no sustained pressure. Nobody wanted to make systemic change. I think a lot of people wanted to talk about it because it was trendy at the time, but nobody actually wanted to change the system. So we have a worse system now, which sucks. Mm. Related to that, the other thing that really emerged in 2020 was TikTok as a vector for political communication, both from 
politicians externally, but more predominantly like people spreading political messaging and sort of fostering information ecosystems. How are you feeling in terms of like when you bring up sort of progress, how are you feeling, you know, we're heading into another election year and TikTok is as strong as it ever was. And there's more vehicles for video-based messaging. Like, I don't know, what's your finger to the wind feeling about this coming year? Well, TikTok was, has always been just such a really important um, platform for activism and activists and especially youth activism, like young sort of people that want social change have leverage TikTok very effectively. I think that's why you see all these Republicans embracing it. Vivek, whatever his name is, who's running for, Rome you know, Swami, yeah. yeah, like, you know, he's out with Jake Paul on TikTok the other day. Like, so I think it's just going to play a bigger and bigger role in our political system because it's the default social network for millions of young people. And it's sort of like, I always describe TikTok as a combination of sort of Twitter and YouTube, where there is all this like academia and like political discussion and actually a lot of smart people and, and journalists and stuff. Um, well, actually not as many journalists as Twitter, but you know, like there's, there's enough like media on there. And then also with YouTube culture where it's like, it's very video based. It's very like commentary culture is really huge on TikTok. So I think it's just going to play a bigger, bigger role in the, our election cycles. And mm. not the platform itself. Actually, I shouldn't say the platform itself. The platform itself, people like to think that it's like being programmed by China or something. It's not, or there's no absolutely no evidence of that. I just mean that people leveraging the platform, activists and people leveraging the platform to get the word out about whatever they're trying to talk about. Mm. So this is not in the book, but just to piggyback off that question, because I've seen you speak about this elsewhere and I'd love to discuss it with you a little bit. There's a lot of like geopolitical positioning around TikTok in particular. What do you make of that relative to the sort of Western tech giants? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so hilarious to listen to these people talk about TikTok as if it's the greatest threat when we have Facebook here in our own country. Like they're worried that TikTok could potentially, you know, disrupt an election when we have actual evidence that Facebook <laughs> has done that many times, you know, many, many times. They're worried that TikTok could like, you know, lead people to violence when we have so many examples of Facebook facilitating genocide in other countries. It's like all of the stuff that they're accusing that TikTok might do, that there's no evidence TikTok has actually done or, you know, facilitated. We have overwhelming, we have so many examples of Facebook actually doing those things and actually facilitating those things. So it's just like, oh, but it's fine because it's America. Also, by the way, it, the whole data privacy thing is such a farce. If they cared about data privacy, they would pass comprehensive data privacy reform. But if you shut down TikTok tomorrow, one, there's still so many other Chinese apps and, and gaming, which is the bigger form of entertainment than anything else is like half owned by Chinese companies. So I can't even get into that. But like, also, China could buy our data from a third-party Facebook vendor. Like, we have no data privacy. So if you're actually caring about data privacy to the extent that you want to shut down an app, make such an unprecedented decision, then you should actually pass a lot more comprehensive data privacy reform before anything like that ever even happens, you know? But of course, they don't want to do that. They just want to make a political boogeyman. And it is this place for young progressive activism. And so that's why you see the Republicans and the right-wing parties want to shut it down because it's a place where young people congregate and push a lot of progressive ideology. Mm, mm. You, you, you sort of prompted me to think about that report from, I think it was 2021 in uh, Wall Street Journal about Facebook knowing that Instagram was detrimental to adolescent women's mental health. And mental health comes up actually in Extremely Online as well with this kind of like metrics 
game the algorithm culture which like i think would have felt really foreign like if you rewound to the 90s and sort of talked to the like techno utopians and said people are gonna feel so strung out because they're running on this hamster wheel and that's one of the primary effects of these platforms could you share a little bit about some of what's happened relative to mental health on these platforms and among creator communities yeah well these platforms basically put their creators as you said like on a treadmill there's no off-ramp being a creator is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And there's almost no respect for it. Like there's no like institutional respect in the sense that like, we don't have a social safety net in, these, in this country at all. So the, these, these people are basically like trying to be their own, like they're essentially independent contractors for these companies, but they have no benefits. They have no support. They can't take a week off, right? Without losing followers, losing money. So it's just, it's a very hard job. And it of course affects mental health and social media. Generally this public, all of the, I think making metrics public was like the original sin of social media. Like it's so negative because it puts this social pressure on everyone to like, make sure you get that extra like, or make sure you get an extra hit a certain follower numbers. Cause that says something about your social value. And it's just, it's very toxic. And I don't think that the internet is inherently toxic or, or that the fact that it facilitates connection, the notion of social technology, I think is not toxic. We should be more connected. I don't think, I hate this idea of like, oh, well, you just have to log off. And the more you log off, the more mentally healthy you are. I think you can spend literally 24 seven online. It's just that the way that we use the internet and the platforms we have access to, and most of the platforms that we're forced to rely on right now are these really predatory ones. So I wish that wasn't the case and I wish we had a much better social media landscape. But I think the focus is always kind of, I hate the notion that I hate the like for focus of logging off. It's like, don't tell everyone to stop logging off. Tell everyone to like, let's build better systems to facilitate better connection because people's lives aren't inherently better when they log off either. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's often discounted that this is a whole architecture of power. I mean, it's a driver of the entire global economy now. And, and you sort of make the point, like, even if you're not part of any platform, then you'll be in other people's photos. It's like your footprint is still traveling around these platforms. Exactly. This is shifting from the creators to their fandom. I'd love to talk a little bit about fandom with you because another thing that I was really like, it, it's funny for me as um, a millennial, I feel like I grew up with all these platforms and I had varying degrees of connection to them and connection to what was going on. And so I saw this stuff happening in the background, but it was kind of just part of my everyday life. One service that I think this book provides is it really contextualizes it and gives you this 20 year history with the flashpoint moments to engage with. And one thread that I saw evolving throughout is this idea of fandom. And oh, this ties into the the earlier discussion around the transition from friends to followers and building a follower count and the way in which that then also starts to foster fandoms. Can you describe a little bit of how you've seen fandom evolve and maybe some moments like some of these tours, like the digi tours that rendered visible how different creator culture was, or, or, or rather how much more social capital being a creator had than people originally realized? Yeah. Well, one of the first sort of things that people started to notice, I think once the, like there, you know, creators were building these fandoms online, but they were very segregated to the internet, right? Like they're what they, you didn't, that people could sort of write it off that people that didn't spend time online, didn't have visibility into those fandoms because they weren't spending time online. They didn't see it. So once things sort of started to really manifest in the real world was when people started to like 
notice. I mean, I talk about this like early Vine meetup that a bunch of Vine creators had in Central Park and that being kind of a moment. I talk because it used to be like creators meeting up with each other. There was things like the 777 meetup. It was July 7th, 2007 in Washington Square Park, a bunch of YouTubers met up. But at that time, like in, I would say 2010 and earlier, it was more about like YouTubers meeting up with each other. Even the first VidCon was like still very much like YouTubers meeting up with each other. But I would say that actually the first VidCon was also this like turning point because there was fans, like there were fans, but it was very early fandom. And like they had full access to the creators. There wasn't this strong delineation between who was a creator and who was a fan. And so it really wasn't until kind of like, I would say maybe the second half of the early 2015 or sorry, 2010s, like 2013, 2014, 2015, when you started to see these real fandoms emerge, that's when you saw tours. So you had people, content creators were going on mall tours, companies like Buca de Beppo even had like a content creator tour. That was my favorite example because I found all their like signage for it. And it was so funny. It was like, hey, look, we have like internet stars at Buca de Beppo, come to Buca de Beppo. <laughs> Like, what? But they were trying to capitalize on this like youth fandom. Obviously, MagCon. If you guys haven't watched Chasing Cameron on Netflix, it's such a time capsule. It's a documentary about MagCon from like 2015 or 2016. And MagCon was one of the original influencer tourists. MagCon stands for meet and greet. Um, and so yeah, you started to see you started to see like fandom manifest IRL. And then now I think all the platforms are so big and everyone is online that it's very clear who's who has fan like you see the fa fandom is just it's become more pervasive and recognized it used to be like oh those are just like internet fans and now it's like oh it's all the same are you observing anything like i remember when be real had i was having its moment in the sun there was a lot of talk around the kind of non like it was somehow not playing into some of these more complicated threads of social media I guess one, what's your sort of thoughts on that? And then two, do you see any other glimmers that social media is shifting um, toward less yeah, rankings or sort of gamified examples, or is it really just doubling down in that direction? Um, I would say mostly it's doubling down, but yeah, there's a lot of like small viral apps that I think don't have, they haven't proven to have staying power, but they sort of tap into something. Um, Be Real is an example of it. I think people obviously like, I, I think this era, I mean, the reason I end the book like where I do, which is sort of in 2022-ish, it's like, I do think that that was sort of like the end of a, a certain chapter of social media. And as the pandemic has pushed sort of everyone online, especially in 2020, like, I think there's a level of exhaustion. I think people today are starting to value privacy more. And mm. we've gone so far where like we are in this like mass surveillance culture where like everyone just like records everyone else if they're, they, you know, like, oh, I see something crazy. I'm going to record it because that could be a viral moment online because we all understand that that's like a commodity now. But I think we're, I think that's why you see people actually wanting to use these smaller platforms like Be Real, where it's more contained, or like group chat or Discord or like places where you're not default sharing publicly. Like you're not default sharing everything sort of publicly and permanently. Because I just think that era of social media is a little bit over. It's not really novel to like have every thought be public. I think certain people, if you want to reach everyone, you can post on these platforms, but it's more about reaching who you want to. Even TikTok is more about reaching who you want to than Facebook or sorry, than uh, Instagram or Twitter, right? Like, or YouTube, because it the algorithm segments you and you trust that it will deliver your content to the relevant audience. Whereas all these other platforms you're posting publicly and you have to build your own subscribers and it's a lot of burden on the user. Mm. 
Do you see any of this correlating with, I mean, like there's even this book that just came out that's breaking out the different qualities of generations going back to the silent generation. Do you see part of where you chose to draw this line around 2022-ish correlating it all to Gen Z officially being the kind of like it generation or are those two things incidental to each other? I think 2017 was the moment that Gen Z became sort of the it generation. I wrote a piece that year actually about Gen Z consultants and how consulting for Gen Z stuff was taking off. That's when brands really started to flip and target Gen Z. So I do think, I think we're actually more in the middle of Gen Z sort of culture. I think it's more just like average people have all gotten very online. Like, I think we're just, I think the pandemic accelerated a lot of change that was happening but now we're there, like we're there already where like everyone has an online footprint. Everyone's online. It's not just like the kids. It's like, it's affecting politics, sports, fashion, entertainment. Like every single aspect of our culture is so shaped and driven by the internet now. And so that's kind of, I wanted to end it there because I felt like we had reached that point. It was less about like a specific generation maturing. I did see some marketing report about Gen Alpha recently. And I was like, Mm. are we are we even thinking about that already? Like there's so many <laughs> generations. Um, but it is interesting. I will say like, you know, one other thing that I thought was notable or kind of changed my own perception is I think as a millennial, I'm with you. I'm like kind of smack dab, like true millennial, millennial. Like I had always thought that millennials were the first generation to really leverage the internet and grow up on social media, which is sort of true, but actually all those early bloggers were Gen X and like those mommy bloggers were Gen X. And there's a lot of Gen Xers. I mean, even like Keemstar or like Ethan Klein at H3H3, like these big YouTubers, like they, a lot of them are a little bit older than we think. And I think the internet is thought of as this thing that's driven by young people. I mean, Jeffree Star is Gen X, like there's, but there's so many Gen Xers actually that have shaped the internet. And I, I think they actually deserve more credit. I know they're always like, people say that they're always an overlooked generation. And I think their contribution to, to the internet has been overlooked. And I know they're cringy online sometimes, but they really did a lot. Well, I mean, it, and this is like kind of the classic thing. My partner's son is a gen alpha and there's definitely a, a sense that like, no matter how cool I would ever want to try to be on the internet, that I'm always going to be cringe. So I think there's this, you know, generational, like you you sort of reject the, whatever the previous, and I wonder how long that lasts too, because kind of, as you're describing Gen X, like bust down the walls, millennials are much more platform oriented. And then now there's this proliferation of platforms, but then how different does that become in the future? And I think that depends on a lot of factors in terms of like technology and things that are sort of out of our ability to sort of accurately forecast kind of related to this. In thinking about your role, you kind of defined the digital culture beat. Like this wasn't something people took seriously before you. And now there's a whole crop of people who cite you as their main influence in this type of coverage. And this being like your first big book, can you talk me through a little bit of the, I don't know, creative process and decision-making process in picking what pieces of this puzzle to highlight? Also because in some ways there's inevitably holes because there were so few people even covering it in the first place. So even going back to the historical work, I assume was, was pretty complicated. Yeah, it was really hard because <laughs> I mean, so much I, from 2009 on, that's when I was writing and that's when I was covering things and, that, and I, and I lived through this and I like, it was very, I've had sources. It was very easy. What was ha- very hard was the odds. Um, I would say shout out to Todd Spangler at Variety, like Todd, 
Todd, I don't know that I could have written this book without Todd's writing. He he deserves more credit. I should have given him acknowledgement. I gave it to a lot of women, but like there were these writers, um, Josh Constein at TechCrunch was another one that like they ended up covering a lot of this stuff really early and really well on digital media sites generally. But it was, yeah, the aughts were what was really hard. I had to go back and just interview so many people. I interviewed like hundreds of people for the book, but there was a lot of, I guess, which I've learned now is called link rot, which is like actually happened to me. My earliest, my first bylines are not even on the internet anymore because the websites I wrote for were like bought and defunct or pivoted or whatever. So um, it was hard to find. I also could have never written this book without the internet archive. Like the internet archive is such an important, it, it's so funny because Elon Musk was saying that I my, my family owned it or something a while ago. <laughs> and the founder was like, we don't know her and we don't claim her. Like we are not, like Taylor does not like, um, but I, you know, they, they deserve, like, they deserve all the money in the world because I think the work that they're due to preserve, um, websites and, and, you know, old pieces of media is just really important. Cause I was relying on that heavily, like the original socialite, I opened with this story about this blog called socialite bank. Like if that wasn't completely preserved on the internet archive, we would not have a historical record of it. Really. We would have like maybe a New York magazine article that was written after the fact that like it was sort of a short piece that didn't cover everything, you know? So yeah, it's just so important to have that like source material. Yeah. I mean, and I'm glad right. oh, sorry. I'll say one other thing. I'm just so glad that there's more writers now. There's not even nearly enough. I mean, there's more reporters covering Facebook, just Facebook as a company than there are internet culture reporters. And mm. I think that says so much about how we view tech reporting. And it's just, I, I wish that we had like 50 more reporters on this beat. Mm. What? Why do you think there's resistance? It seems like when I look at your work and when I look at Kat's work, Katie's work, like these are, I'm assuming highly trafficked stories. It's not as if these are not proving themselves out in the metrics. What, what do you think the resistance is in terms of staffing appropriately to cover these? these it's what comes with it. it it's mm. what comes with it. They don't, they don't, they can't handle it's the attention that the attention is the problem, right? Like I know mm. every story I write is going to blow up because I, a lot of my stories, at least like every major story I do is goes viral because I'm writing about huge personalities. I'm writing about people usually with millions of followers that are going to respond. I'm writing about things that everyone's talking about or has strong opinions on or that it's trending or whatever. Like, and so there's just so much, if you do the, if you do the job well, you are constantly in the, you are in their world, right? You are in this content creator universe where like, it's crazy. And you're operating in this new media ecosystem. That's an attention driven ecosystem. That's been weaponized by the worst people in the world. So you as a media company need, you need to stand by your reporters. This is why the New York times, no offense, doesn't do internet culture reporting well because they're not willing to go into those spaces and truly cover them. You have a couple of reporters that might dip in one, you know, now and then, but they don't have anybody actually covering it. And that's why they cover everything like two months too late. Um, I, I will say though, Jessica Roy is very good and she's been writing for them lately and she's extremely with it and very good. And like Joe Bernstein as well. But I think it's so funny that those two writers are on the style section. That just shows yeah. kind of like, how they view it. it's right it's like oh it's this silly little thing over here it's not like a core thing that's like upending everything in our lot like you know political landscape and economy um mm. so i think it's just so hard for traditional media they're very scared of the internet they're very scared of it and they don't know how to react when when attention is driven their way and they don't they don't know what to do mm. and the reporters themselves often are driven out of the industry like 
I mean, I can think of three women right now who are were phenomenal, phenomenal reporters who were driven out of the industry by driven off of this beat specifically mm. because of the amount of online harassment and hate and doxing and crazy shit that they've had to deal with. So you also have to be like really good at dealing with that. Mm. And I would say like I've I've started in this world in 2009 and I feel like I what is the metaphor of like the boiling frog, but like oh, yeah. I'm you know like everything that happened to me with like writing about libs of TikTok, I was like, Jake Paul fans have done this to me like years before. Like I'm I'm old enough to where it doesn't affect my life as much, but these young reporters, they're even more online. Their lives are even more mediated by the internet. It's very hard for them. And they, mm. if they don't have institutional support, they can't do their job. I'm thinking, I'm remembering this moment where, and I think it was either right before or right after you had departed New York Times and there was this public exchange with Maggie Haberman that I found to be <laughs> really telling about how you know, journalists even, and it's not necessarily age or generational, because of course, as, as you sort of pointed out, they're very savvy and, and thoughtful older reporters, but it was kind of a, uh, it was an older sensibility about like how, you know, a reporter is supposed to sort of comport themselves and the certain types of objectivity they're supposed to maintain and the, the persona. It wasn't, about, it wasn't about objectivity though. It was about having a personal brand. First of all, I don't believe in objectivity. I think everyone has, like, it's a lie. And I think Wes Lowry has written excellent pieces dismantling that notion. But really? yeah, I had said in an interview, actually, I was asked the question about journalists having personal brands. And I was like, yes, journalists have to have personal brands, especially on the internet these days. That's like, you know, we, we live in a, we're, it's a very talent driven industry. And so journalists have to have brands. And Maggie, who have, of course, 1.7 million followers and her whole, like, I would say almost no one is more of a personal brand, especially during the Trump administration than her, came after me for it and said that, yeah, basically like I was an attention seeker and all this negative stuff. And I just thought that was hilarious because look in the mirror, you know, like, what are you talking about? You are a perfect example of this. You, again, you have 1.7 million Twitter followers. Don't talk to me about personal brands like you. And, but it, but I think, as you said, it's this old school notion she didn't have to build her personal brand. She didn't have to do any of that because she relied on the platform of the institution. Now, institutions don't have power. And if you want to survive in this landscape where we're all getting laid off 24 seven, which any millennial that worked in digital media or any Gen Z person can relate to, you do actually have to have a brand on the internet. And I don't think that that's necessarily a great thing because I think there's a lot of amazing reporters that don't sort of like, want to cultivate it like necessarily but i would say even then you know i talked to a friend who's actually still at the new york times phenomenal investigative reporter and he's like yeah even i have to have a personal brand that doesn't mean that i'm on TikTok, but i'm like known as this like investigator and i have to be really careful to like cultivate this like personality around that and like cultivate my image around it and like you have to do that just to operate this is a media you don't you like media is always been this way it's like Look at Anderson Cooper, look at Barbara Walters, look at like any big journalist, Woodward and Bernstein, right? Like it's a talent business. So yes, unfortunately we have to have brands and we all <laughs> have to have brands by the way. <laughs> anyway, not to go on a rant, but like, that was so funny when she was quote tweeting me, I was just like, what the heck? Yeah, I was very, I was, I was very surprised to see that as well. And, and just building on that, do you have a sort of heuristic or a set of boundaries in your mind for like how a reporter can not maintain objectivity, but maintain a certain degree of reliability, authenticity with audience that they are attempting to cover something in a 
fair and balanced way, but not in the weaponized fair and balanced way while also, cause you know, like take financial writing, you just disclose what you have positions in and that covers your bases. Um, yeah. But with having a personal brand that's more rooted in a particular culture, what's happening that I think is anathema to, well, actually Maggie or like political writers actually, I think are the most um, maybe amenable to this type because all the sort of questions of access journalism, but what's happening with digital culture is like, you're both covering digital culture, but also enmeshed in it. So I guess I'm wondering in terms of having a brand that sort of participates in creator culture while also being respected as somebody covering it, are there any this guardrails? you can that's always been true for any culture reporter, right? It's like, of course, culture reporters that wrote about music and film or whatever, or cult, just culture in general, we live in culture. All of us do. You can't opt out of culture. And by the way, same with politics. Like these political reporters like to think that like, oh, I'm objective or I don't vote because I, because I'm a political reporter or something. It's like, what are you talking about? You live it. We all live in a political world. Like this is just the world that we all live in. I think the most important thing is to be fair and to be accurate and to be truthful. That's the most important thing. So sometimes I'm writing about somebody that maybe I don't personally love, but I'm accurate and truthful and fair. And I think it's better for me to be open and be like, look, yeah, I'm not personally a fan of this YouTuber or something maybe, but I'm reporting on them fairly. And, you know, everything that's reported is truthful and accurate. Just the way that a music writer, of course, the music writer, they're not going to not listen to music and abstain from music because they have to be objective. Like you, they're going to like certain artists better than others. And that might shape sort of what they choose to cover. Like they might want to cover a band that they really like that maybe wouldn't normally get covered or something, but you know, it's their job to report on the industry, whether, you know, whether or not they like Taylor Swift, right? Like they're going to have to report on her tour being a huge success. I think it's just when people try to, like, I mean, this is what I think Wes Lowry is just so good at. Like, he wrote this excellent piece that I just, like, he's more articulate than I am on it. But it's like this this false idea of objectivity, where objectivity is really just, it is actually just one ideology and sort of set of opinions that sort of a lot of old white rich men hold. And it's mm. like, that's considered the objective opinion, right? Mm. Um it's obviously a farce. And the, the most important thing is to be truthful. I'm such an open book. You know, if somebody asks me my opinion on something, I'll happily tell my opinion, but I don't let that opinion affect my work because I'm always doing like the most, you know, I'm, I mean, I let it affect, we all decide sort of what to cover based off things we're interested in, of course, or accountability things that we're focused on. But, you know, it's just, I, I it's so silly, all those conversations, because this has always been the case. And yeah. by the way, newspapers make political... <clears throat> all the time like if you choose to do any any kind of investigative journalism is inherently political you know like if you're investing investigating gun violence deaths and putting together this big picture around gun violence like that that says you you have a specific outcome that you want right um so i think we should just be more transparent about it because what readers don't trust is when you try and say that oh no we i'm a completely neutral person it's like well no one is we all live in the world you referenced rich white men and bias, which means that, of course, and also, you know, Isaacson's biography is everybody's talking about, you know, the, the sort of elephant in the room of media discourse is Elon Musk for the foreseeable future. Do you have any thoughts about where that is all heading? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I will, I will say I, I'm, I'm definitely was reading all the excerpts that I could because I was, I cover Elon sometimes and I wanted to know what he'd found. I mean, I wanted to write my book because my reporting always focuses not on those people. Like I wanted to write a book that was about 
the other side of tech, because I think so much of how we've understood the rise of social media is through these corporate narratives that center these men, like, mm. I mean, the social network, right? Like that's sort of the defining like way that people understand the rise of social media is through these narratives that just center Silicon Valley boy geniuses and powerful <laughs> men. And every single tech book has to be like a company book. You know, it's like, we have like 10 WeWork books or we have the YouTube book and the Instagram book, which I love, by the way, I could literally Sarah Fires, no filters right behind me. It's extremely good. But I think we need alternatives to that too. I think we need books that zoom out and tell the user side and and look at these creators and like look at the industry around it and how it's been shaped because social platforms are very unique they they have a very symbiotic relationship with the user base it's not like these tech geniuses just built these products and then everyone uses them how they want in fact quite the opposite usually the tech people had no idea what was going on and sort of like a lot of them succeeded despite themselves so for me i didn't want to write another tech book that was just about some you know powerful man or some man that fell from grace like SBF or whatever like I wanted to write about these other people who have never have been basically written out of history and tell the story of social media through the cultural lens not just through these tech silicon valley narratives. Mm. I really appreciate that and it makes for a much more surprising and enriching reading experience. Um I have a few recurring questions. They're sort of like lightning round style questions. You've answered them to a certain extent earlier, so feel free to repeat yourself. But what's one thing you wish people paid more attention to? Oh, God. I mean, misogyny on the internet. I'm going to say it because that was such a through line in reporting this book was all these incredible women that have been driven off the internet by hate, and it made me sad. Mm. What's one resource you would recommend for making better sense of reality? Oh, really good question. Hmm. I mean, TikTok, I think people that don't use TikTok should spend time on it because it is a real window into sort of culture today. And it's such a defining, important platform. I think people should check it out. Mm. And what's one moment where your sense of reality was disrupted? Yeah, sense of reality is disrupted. I mean, I guess when COVID hit, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I actually had a lot of beliefs about like human nature and all this stuff before COVID that I now have completely changed my mind on. I used to think people were inherently good and I don't think that anymore. I think people oh, are inherently evil. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And you just feel like because, um, because of what was sort of put on display when the pandemic came down. Actually it was, it was what happened after in 2020, you know, that was sort of a really good year in the sense that people had a lot of solidarity and seemed to care about other people. I think anybody that follows me online knows this, but I'm severely immunocompromised. Um, actually, I really only talk about it on Twitter, so most people don't know, but I, I'm severely immunocompromised and very sick. And so I sort of, in 2020, it was like, oh, people are having solidarity and clapping for the healthcare workers. And and now it's like, oh, I mean, they're banning masks and everyone can die and we're going to have absolutely no systemic solutions to this virus that continues to maim millions of people. And I mean, kill so many people. I mean, I lost another person I love to it just several months ago. Like, I'm sorry. Um, so it's, it's just horrible. It's horrible. And no one cares, of course. Like no one... No one cares. And in fact, actually, there's real hostility and I think a real like 
eugenicist sort of thinking that's emerged out of COVID, which is, I learned is actually very common in, in the previous pandemic in 1919, you know, eugenics became this huge thing as well, like following that. And, and I think we're seeing that now with this notion of vulnerable people, well, you can just die, like hurry up and die because the rest of us are going to be fine. And that's not true. You know, eventually you will get sick and die. That is true for everyone, whether it's old age or cancer or something like we all die, actually, and we all become vulnerable. You might not be medically vulnerable now, but you will be. And so I think it's really horrifying what's mm. just the, the public sentiment, especially from political leaders. Like, that's what's really scary is the, the, the normalization of just that thinking. And I'm like, oh, damn, I really thought everyone was I thought we had were better than that. But now I think everyone is sort of inherently bad and um, you need society. Like we, we have to build societies to facilitate good behavior among people and, mm. and caring about other people. We don't have a very collectivist society. You know, we live in like one of the most individualistic countries in the world. And I think that's why we have outside of China, which is just so much bigger than us, you know, the highest rate of COVID deaths in the world still right now, mm. you know. Mm. So that's something that changed. Not really internet-y, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's I actually think it's very. I yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah. And I, I remember reading, you know, all caveats that the numbers could be off and whatever. But I remember reading somebody the effect of like, given the projected spread of COVID over, you know, the next ten or twenty years or something like that, that we are essentially going to be dealing with like twenty percent of the population, in some way, large and small, affected by long term deleterious health impacts, which was really, really striking when you have, yeah, political leaders saying like, it's done, let's go back to work. Yeah, sorry to all the sick and disabled people, you can just die. And by the way, there's absolutely no safety net for you. So if you do get disabled, you are literally, you are dead to the world because we live in this hyper-capitalist society where as soon as you lose value as a worker, you, your life loses value. And it's very sad to see leftists parrot this stuff because like no one has defended the capitalist state more than like these leftists that also want to pretend that COVID is over. And it's scary because you're like people have, have like socialist in their bio and they're just like, oh, you can't work. You're useless. It's like, what? <laughs> what are you guys talking about? <laughs> so yeah. I, it makes me very sad. But it's also been interesting, you know, like to kind of it's one of the few things that it I would have thought that nothing could get me to change my mind about that previously. But now, um, yeah, my mind has totally changed. So. Well, how about this? Let's let's rewind to pre-COVID, because one thing we didn't talk about that I really did want to talk about with you is you reference in your acknowledgments both how Tumblr, I believe you wrote, I, I had written down the quote, but something to the effect of like it saved your life. And also that your Taylor yeah. Renz 3.0 community was really supportive in making decisions around the book. So I'd love to hear a little bit about those kind of episodes yeah, in your life. Yeah. I do think Tumblr saved my life because I was so depressed before Tumblr. So I got on Tumblr in 2009 and I wasn't really on the internet before. I actually didn't have my space. I had Facebook in college, obviously like every other person, but like I didn't, I wasn't really online until Tumblr and Tumblr, yeah, completely opened my world and got me everything in life. So I love Tumblr and yeah, I have a bunch of accounts online that are just for fun, including my like funny meme account. And I've always had accounts like that, but I just love the community that I have online and my community of followers because when I had to make, I'm the most indecisive person ever. So when I had to make decisions about the book, I would always do like polls and stuff and they would always give me advice and help me. And obviously they're the ones that have pre-ordered my book and really supported 
me throughout my career and they support my work. And so I'm just so grateful to like anyone that follows me and engages with my work and supports my work because I couldn't do it without them, you know? So hmm. shout That's out nice. to all the followers. <laughs> I guess extending from that, do you have any ideas for like, are there things that could happen at the level of creator culture or tech infrastructure of social media platforms that would maybe give you some more faith in the sort of inherent goodness for humanity? Or maybe a, a cleaner way of phrasing the question is, what would you identify as something that's desperately needed in the social media creator ecosystems? Yeah, well, I think because people are so inherently evil and bad that we really <laughs> need technology to to bring out the best in us, right? And and we need people, we need technology that brings us together and helps us create community in, in really, you know, powerful and meaningful ways and can help facilitate true connection between people and true understanding and empathy. And I think right now we have platforms that sort of strip empathy, right? We have platforms that... Um, that sow division and and actually feed into sort of the worst of human nature. And so, I mean, that's just my hope is that we build new, less profit-driven social technology that can help connect us and help build bonds. I think the internet's power is as a connector of people. That is like the whole point of the internet is to connect people. And so I think we need to build more platforms that actually do that. And, you know, I don't know what that looks like, but it definitely does not look like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you know? <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, the book, I've got extremely online here, but you also have the, the official copies uh, on your shelf. It's um, out October 3rd. You have the, you have the, What's that? Yes. You have the rare collector's edition before Love I it. changed the cover to gold. <laughs> um, Actually, it's out on pre-order now, so please pre-order. Pre-orders are like the only thing that matters for books, but you can get it officially in bookstores October 3rd. Amazing. And uh, where can people find you and information about the book in the meantime? Yeah, on Instagram. I'm just at Taylor Lorenz on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok and I'm on YouTube now at Taylor Lorenz. So the only platform I don't use anymore for news and tech stuff is Twitter. So everywhere else you can follow me. I'm on threads. We'll see if that goes anywhere and Blue Sky <laughs> and all those other. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for being here. It's been a super illuminating conversation and I really appreciate your book. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. This podcast is edited and produced by me, Jesse Damiani. Music is by Eaters. Sound effects by Eric Medias at soundimage.org. For more information, please visit realitystudies.co. And if you appreciate the work I'm doing, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing it. Until next time.